I think it starts with wanting to build a massively successful and lasting business. One that has like a standout culture, one that actually lives its values. And to me, this is actually what leads to an engaged workforce and an awesome employee experience. What people need in order to be engaged can be very specific to, to them. Thinking about it from a, a higher altitude is, is something that I think is, is really helpful because you can't solve all of the edge cases. I think about it at an org level first. Are we building a healthy organization that leads to an engaged organization that leads to an awesome employee experience? Welcome to Leveling Up, where you'll learn from leading experts in talent development and explore how leaders in some of the world's most successful businesses approach employee development, manager training, and more. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also listen on our website at levelingup.co. Hi, everyone. It's Mary, your host for Leveling Up. Today, I'm excited to share with you my conversation with Chris Tobin, Senior Vice President of People at Intercom. Chris helps the company attract top talent worldwide and provide a world-class employee experience anchored in Intercom's unique culture of heart and hustle. He leads all aspects of the global HR function, including talent acquisition, internal comms, DEI, learning and development, and so much more. Intercom is a customer communications platform that helps companies build strong relationships with their customers and drive growth. The company has over 700 employees operating in four countries and five offices and powers 500 million conversations a month across its over 25,000 customers. Before Intercom, Chris held the top HR executive role at fintech company Affirm, Flipboard, the digital magazine platform, and the digital media company Say Media. Prior to Say Media, Chris held senior human resources and organization development roles at eBay and Sun Microsystems. Chris graduated from the University of Colorado with honors and a dual bachelor's degree in psychology and comparative religious studies. Chris also holds a PhD in organizational psychology from the California School of Professional Psychology. We are lucky to have Chris on the show. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Today I have with me Chris Tobin, Senior Vice President of People at Intercom, Chief People Officer. Chris, thanks so much for being with me. Uh, My pleasure. We are going to get into some nitty gritty details on how you ended up at Intercom and what your philosophy is around talent development. I'd love to just start at the top. How has your career led you to Intercom and being a head of HR? Yeah, for sure. The last decade plus, I've been working in, I don't know, fast growth, late stage startups. This is now my fourth. So my first was with a company called Say Media, a media company that was about 60 and grew to about 400. Then I went to Flipboard, which uh, a lot of people know in the media world. And prior to to being here at Intercom, I was with the fintech company, Affirm, in all the same role, basically working on anything that's sort of related to employee experience. So everything from core HR to L&D to recruiting to workplace real estate strategy, anything that sort of falls into the the employee experience is something that I've been really close to over the last 10 plus years. Prior to that, I was was actually mostly focused in learning and development, really, in, in Oregon organization development. And I thought I actually wanted to spend my career there, but I had a, a really amazing mentor when I was at Sun Microsystems who, who really helped me see that I could be a leader in HR and build really important sort of component of the business. And if I were to sort of transition over to the dark side, so to speak. So I made that transition at Sun Microsystems and really haven't looked back. And you mentioned the dark side. So tell me more about, we were just talking before the show on how there's this reputation of certain organizations treating HR a little bit less like the, the way that you view it. So how do you view the role of HR within the organization? Yeah, I think if it, someone was, was to ask me, you know, in the start of my career, if I would have been in HR, I, I would have said, 
no way possible. Originally, I thought I wanted to be a clinician. So coming out of college, I thought I wanted to work with people in, in that way. I never thought of myself as an HR person. I, I wanted to help build sort of massively successful businesses. And, and I wanted to solve real problems. And when I went to school for sort of organizational psychology, the training is really about solving business problems, taking a consultative approach to thinking through how to help a business grow and, and be a business person. And, and just so coincidence have it that my expertise would be in people and in culture and so forth, but really in service of building a, a business. And so to me, before I, I moved into HR, I just had this perception that HR was about compliance and personnel and this old model of, of sort of, or old sort of construct, if you will. It quickly, that's on microsystems, which I think, frankly, but if anyone out there has any tie to Sun Microsystems, you, you probably would agree. It was just an unbelievably amazing professional HR organization. And even though I'm bummed that, that Sun was acquired and disbanded you know, at some level, it was maybe one of the better things that happened to the Valley because it just spit out all these amazing HR pros. And they went everywhere and did lots of great things in, in Silicon Valley. But yeah, like I was sort of mentioning, to me, HR is exactly how I described what, what sort of my orientation was with organization development. The only difference is that organization development or management consulting and even L&D consulting at some level is typically issue-based. And so something's typically broken for you to be called in <laughs> to help consult and to understand the problem and to help solve those problems. And HR doesn't necessarily need to be issue-based. It can be proactive. And frankly... It's the reason why I, I, I knew I needed to be in scaling startups versus an established large business that had lots of deep grooves, so to speak. I wanted to be in growing scaling businesses so that I could apply to learning and training from uh, as an organization psychologist to the HR sort of world and function to build the types of leaders that you want to build from the beginning, to create the culture that you wanted to create from the start versus having to come in to, to change it, to deconstruct it, to understand it, and then rebuild it. So it really, to me, is the same mindset. And, and I think that most, most, I think, HR professionals, I think at this point, in, at least in, in Silicon Valley, and at least in, let's say, scaling startups, I think approach it this way these days. So yeah, things have shifted over time. Yeah. Being that strategic partner, being proactive, right? When you're designing the system from the ground up, what does that look like on a tactical level? I think it's, it's interesting. I think that when you're, you join a scaling business from a people perspective, you really are helping to create scale. And I always tell people a lot of times the processes that we put in place are never as good as the organic ones that help like successful companies become, you know, get to the place where they need to hire sort of a, a person like myself. You know, when you're when you're small and scrappy and, and young, performance management is, you know, standing up, you know, over the table and saying, hey, you're not doing what you need to be doing and you're blocking me from doing my work. That's like real-time feedback. When you're a thousand people, 500 people, you have to have a system in place. And so you have to create a system that helps scale the organization. And, and like I said, replace something that may have worked really well when you're really young um, and growing, but has frayed at the edges and now needs to be replaced by, by, by some sort of process. You know, being able to build, you know, from the beginning and from the start is, is really refreshing and, and, and nice. One example might be around like how you think about scaling culture as an example. And a lot of people talk about like values as, as an example for how you do that. And, and it really is, if you think about it through the lens of trying to codify the, the most important things of, for the company and how we want to work together, and then putting those into to, to programs, um, that, the values that that is, 
um, like how you recruit people, how you hire people, how you fire people, and and, and really using them as a way to, to help um, scale the business and to teach people, like I said, the things that are important. So you know, creating values for the first time, as an example, for an organization is such a, an amazing, thrilling like fun project or program to put in place because you're really doing something that is like said, building for the future. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall within your organization as you build that for the first time. So when you're talking to other leaders who are maybe thinking of ripping out certain pieces that aren't working, which is not the ideal, but and coming in and thinking through values with a fresh perspective, what were the activities that you did at the beginning of developing those values? I mean, uh, so at Intercom, actually, and taking a step back, the things that were important to the business actually had been written down and codified. We actually had them in a comic book form, actually. Our our founder actually wrote, I think actually it wasn't just Owen, I think it was Owen and Des and and probably Dave and Kieran too, contributed to sort of writing down sort of in this narrative form, the things that were important to the company and to the business and how we wanted to work and how we wanted to treat each other. It was great because that foundation already existed. But the problem with that is it was difficult to then take and operationalize, like to actually say, like, how do you actually extract the most salient points and put them into practice? You know, it was challenging and it was, it was, it was close to impossible to be honest. Cause it, so part of what we did was spent a bunch of time with the founders, my team that is did a couple of sort of workshops and we, we tried to distill from that narrative sort of the, the most important values of, of the company. And, and, and you know, we did so over many, many months, to be honest. And finally, we were able to, to come to, you know, to a list that really, uh, I think, does resonate and tell the, the story of, of Intercom. It's probably a great segue into how you and perhaps Intercom think about creating a strong employee experience and work environment that's welcoming to your employees. I imagine the values that they had lead into that. Can you talk a little bit to your philosophy here? Yeah, I think you need to zoom out a bit when you think about employee experience. And and we're talking a little bit about this before the, the, the podcast. I think it starts with wanting to build a massively successful and lasting business. One that has like a standout culture, one that actually lives its values. And to me, this is actually what leads to an engaged workforce an awesome employee experience. What people need in order to be engaged can be very specific to them. Thinking about it from a, a higher altitude is, is something that I think is, is really helpful because you can't solve all of the edge cases as it relates to what people need in order to, to be successful and to be happy with, within their job. I think about it at an org level first. Are we building a healthy organization that leads to an engaged organization that leads to an awesome employee experience. So, you know, th- that to me is the first step is thinking about it and measure from that perspective versus thinking about it from the individual experience perspective, if you will. Because I also think back to what are we trying to do here, right? Is like the first question. And we are a for-profit business. We want to do that in a way that is values-based, but we want to build a really awesome business for that is, like I said, iconic and lasting. So I think you personally, I, I want to always start there and, and then have it go down to the individual experience versus starting at the individual experience and going up. When you start at the bottom, like sometimes I find like you get focused on I don't know things that are not super important, like the type of food that you serve or, or happy hour, or do we have pool tables? And again, I don't think those things are necessarily bad for creating community, but sometimes I think leaders start from that perspective versus starting from the main goal. And and also realizing what drives a healthy and engaged organization is multifaceted. There's so many sort of different sort of layers, some of which you can control and some of them you can't. 
like there's a reason why employee sentiment with public companies that is tracks with stock price. Like success actually makes you feel better about the job that you're doing. And if your company is corrupt, engagement tends to be higher. And I think that's just the reality. So I, I, again, I think about it from a, maybe a more of a, a company level lens than maybe an individual level lens. I think that's great. It, it's something that we talk about a lot, which is what is the role of the manager? And the role of the manager is to drive results. And yeah. and it's something that you can't remove. At the end of the day, we all have jobs in companies, to your point, are, that are trying to to make a profit and have responsibilities to multiple stakeholders. It sounds like you're arguing that it's more that the stock price is going up and then employees are happy rather than the other way around, which is what maybe some other people might want to argue. Yeah. That they're, they're doing well because their employees are happy and you're arguing the opposite. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I, to, to a certain extent, and again, I think you, you can definitely make the argument that more engaged like organization and team and, and individual sort of will put forward more discretionary effort. Therefore, we'll, we'll create sort of a better product. And I think that sort of engagement sort of profit chain also works. My, my point is, is more thinking about it a bit more holistically. Like you said, like manager and leaders, as an example, are a massive driver of, of engagement as well. They're a massive driver of employee experience. And if, if you think about what are all the, the windows that you need to, to look at or the levers or whatever analogy you want to use, that's one of them. The company performance and understanding and alignment to the vision and mission of the company is another one. When you have a, a, a CEO or in our case, actually, we don't have a founder CEO now, but founder-led startups, like the connectedness to that founder, the alignment to that founder is another sort of lever of engagement and a lever of employee experience that is important to think through. Yeah, I guess I'm trying to say is there's, I think about it more holistically and with like three different lenses. Absolutely. And that's fair. How has this evolved since the pandemic started in terms of this top-down structure of creating a culture that people want to be a part of? Yeah, it's really pretty interesting. We're all learning as we go. No one, no one knows the right answers here. One of the things that I think is pretty fascinating, though, with the pandemic is typically you will see more engaged organizations and companies lead to uh, higher levels of retention. That equation actually, uh, in my personal experience, and i also talking to colleagues, has broken. So you can have highly engaged individuals and, com- and a company and still have high levels of attrition which is a bit of a mind bender, right? Because we're so focused on like, well, if we create an engaged organization, people want to stay. There's something else going on, I think, plain armchair psychologists maybe that psychologically here that people are grappling with that are outside of the organization, the company, their mental health components to it. I, my personal take is that there's, there's a control component to it as well. It's, we want to be able to control things in our lives right now. Like for some people, the only thing they can control really is their job and being able to make a decision and to make a change. I think for some people psychologically is really important right now. So again, this is armchair psychology, but I think there's something to, to that. And I don't personally think that as a function or as an industry, we should get too wrapped up in, in, in this and try to crack this nut and solve this because it's evolving so quickly. And yeah, the new normal will be the new normal. Like it's not going to be the same as it was before, but then we'll reach a level of, of balance where we'll be able to take a step back and be like, okay, how do we actually operate in this new environment? Right now, I think we're just like throwing darts with our eyes closed. It's really challenging to navigate and figure out. That two steps forward, three steps back, right? Nobody yeah. knows. Right. It's like, it's what is it going to look like when we turn, return to the office? And I, people will ask me this. And it's a reasonable question. But the, I don't know is the answer. 
And I think that people who say that they know are, are sort of lying. I mean, you're already seeing like some of these big companies, big tech companies who have made sort of some declarations go back on what they've said. We're not going to have any remote employees. Okay, now we are going to have remote employees. People have to be in the office. Now people don't have to be. I think that I'd rather, frankly, learn. And this is one where I don't feel like I personally or my company needs to be on the bleeding edge of. Let's, I'd like to see how it plays out a bit. I'd like to learn from some other folks as it relates to what great looks like in this environment. And then we can calibrate and decide what and how it does when we have, when we know there's a bit more balance in, in the world, if you will. You have offices in multiple locations. And so how are you approaching? Is it still at the moment, everybody's remote slash in office, it's still up in the air? We're, so we were, we wanted to be able to open the offices for people who needed to be there. Yeah. And that was a big issue. I think it is a big issue for folks who live in a one bedroom apartment with, you know, two other roommates or have a new family. And we were having people take meetings from cars as an example. And it's just, it just wasn't, you know, effective. Plus I think a lot of folks who, who are in the workforce, like they, their community is the kind for a lot of folks are like, I need interaction with people. So we wanted to be able to open the office for people who needed to be there. And of course we're following sort of the local guidelines and making sure that whatever is the regulation we're following. Safety obviously is is the most important thing for us. But we're open now, but we're not returning to the office, if you will. We've told people not until at least, I think, January uh, of next year is sort of the thinking. And, and frankly, that date could change. And then we do get back in the office. We've made a couple of declarations. And again, may, maybe against my best judgment, because again, who knows what things will be and how things will be. But we were in our so that the success of our remoteness was built on an in-person culture. And so I believe personally, and I think the leaders of Intercom believe personally that being together is important. And so we have said that we will be in the office at least two days a week and then find days, whether it's monthly or bi-monthly for the entire company to come together for community building, larger group meetings, et cetera. And that, that goes for our remote folks too. If you live in Spain, we'll fly to Dublin for that, that day to make sure that you get that sort of con- connectedness and, and community. It's really interesting. And I have so many questions. I was reading about your think big, start small mentality. Yeah. And I'm curious how this has if you could share a little bit more about it, but then also how this is approached, how you think about the transition right now within the remote world. Yeah. So this is part of that book um, that I was, I was talking about from a values perspective. It was part of the, the ethos of the company. And it's probably a concept that came out of the R&D sort of teams originally in, in Dublin, this idea of having to go and you iterate, you can make sure that you were on the path to where you have a destination, knowing what great looks like but working quickly to make progress and to learn and to not have to build sort of the strive for perfection out of the gate, but to be able to test and iterate quickly and also have a vision for the destination that you're going towards. I think the idea of just iteration can that sometimes not lead to, to progress. It can lead to distraction and sort of divert. Um, but if you have at least a vision for where you want to go, you'll hear people talk about it a lot at the company in all and always. You also talk, hear people talk about, which is related, is this idea of cupcaking. I think some other folks call it the t-shirt sizing. I'm not, I'm not sure there's a bunch of different things people use, but this idea of like building a cupcake version of the of what you're trying to build. Maybe the wedding cake is the right sort of final destination. Know what that wedding cake looks like, like the flavors, like the layers, all the, the different parts. 
but build a small version of it first. I don't, you don't have to build the sort of the perfected piece from the start. So yeah, we use it all the time. And again, like it's an R&D concept that we use to help build shit, but we, we think about it as we build people programs as well in the same way. And so it's, it's always one of those things, like how can we start small? How can we make sure we're thinking thing and thinking towards a strategy, but how can we take off a bite-sized part of this problem and, and solve it and learn from it? I, I think the, the way in which we're transitioning back into the workforce we're having to start small and, and that's i mean in the sort of the, the lens of opening the offices allowing some folks to come we're pulsing and surveying folks who are in the office now to make sure we understand what they think and what they their experiences but again like who knows like who, these are the people who want to be in the office we might have people who don't going forward and we need to understand that experience as well and, and that's something that we won't know until we know we, we did a bunch of surveying early on just to understand like what people thought they would want to do or how many days would you want to be in the office? What do you do in the office? I imagine, yeah, our future selves 12 months from now looking back and saying, who knew that would have happened? Intercom has been growing for a long time and it's of course been growing for the past couple of years as well. How have you approached the hyper growth that Intercom has been feeling with, sorry, faced with, especially in light of COVID and especially in light of return to work environment right now? I don't think I had a silver bullet answer there. I just think grinding. It's so wild to think that we're growing a ton this year. I think our headcount's growing 30 plus percentage. And we've hired so many people who have never set foot in the office. It's, it's absolutely wild to think about. But everyone is doing that right now. All, all of my colleagues are in the same boat. All, all the companies that we, that we benchmark to or look 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 at with to understand best practices. We're all in the same boat. We're say grinding. I mean, we're we're just it's good old fashioned hard work. And when it comes to recruiting, it's just lots of reach outs, lots of all the standard stuff that you do to try to hire people. I don't know. It's again like we haven't rotated heavily to hey, we're a virtual first company or a remote first company. And some have. I think that's helped actually frankly some of the recruiting efforts for some companies. But again, culturally that's not Intercom. We want to support all types of ways of working, and some folks will be re- remote, and that's fine. But a good majority of the folks will be will be in in one of the home offices, and will be coming in a couple of days a week. People find that a lot more people want to work in an office at least sometime. Then there's the studies that I've seen out there, and I'm sure you're looking at the same ones and doing your own as well. But it a huge portion want flexibility, but I don't think any of us really just want to work from home forever and always. I'm sure there's a subset, but it's definitely not the majority. And so it, it will be interesting to see how it plays out. I think focusing on types of work is a really interesting way to think about it. I, I was just thinking about like our team, like our my, my people team is spread throughout the so Dublin and San Francisco and Chicago and, and London and Sydney. And so we've always worked, we've always worked in a remote way. And in, in, in most of my company, the yeah, intercom, we've done that. We, we have, three hours a day where we overlap with Dublin and we call it the, gold, the, the golden hours. And it's just meetings between the U S and Dublin. And so we've always worked away, but it's pretty interesting. Like I was thinking about the last year and a half. And one of the, so a couple of things that I've done doing strategic innovation based work for me is super hard to do over zoom, you know, or, or Google meets. It's just challenging for, for me. For some people I, I've talked to, they actually like it, like the brainstorming and the, so thinking through problems and it's hard for me personally. I don't love the Zoom environment to, to be frank. I get distracted and it's just not enough for me. But the other piece that I've found, which is really, it's not a revelation or anything, but when you have a hard problem to solve, typically what we do is we fly 
to Dublin or vice versa. When you get in a room, you knock it out. Now you can't do that. And so you have three hours a day to work on, you know, really hard problems. You can't do it as fast as you want to, or I think you, you want to or need to. So that part's been the most challenging, I think. And, and just a reminder for me, like, there's just some types of work that are just better in person for me. And I think for my team, and I think we'll find, find that, like I said, I think most people will come to that conclusion, but still technology is so much better where maybe this Zoom interaction, maybe, maybe it does work for a few of those sorts of things. To be honest, like, I think like Second Life, I don't know if you remember Second Life. It was weird for one thing, but sorry if anyone's listening. I actually thought it was fascinating though. Like in, in SMR systems, we actually had a, a, a lab that was building a second light type of, and we would do like some onboarding classes. This, this is 15 plus years ago. In, in second light, you can imagine. And I thought it was better than Zoom. I'll tell you that. It was pretty weird. And Jonathan Schwartz, who's the CEO, kind of looks flying in over this like amphitheater and his avatar. And like, welcome, like however many like new employees there were. Yeah. I mean, I think technology is a long way to, to go to, to actually to be as good or close to, to the in-person work. We're about out of time here and I want to make sure that we cover talent development. We can talk about it all day long as it relates to remote work, but I really am curious more in the lens of your hyper growth, how you're approaching the development of your existing employee base and what that looks like for the foreseeable future. I mean, first of all, you know, shout out to, to the LMD team at Intercom, Liz Sweet, who runs the talent development group, which for us is talent management and LMD. She, lost, she, she had comms for a while and she actually has DEI as well. But she, she's a tremendous leader and, and just a pleasure to work with. So that's one secret. It's like having a really awesome LMT person. But I, I think the other piece, and this is one of the reasons like that Liz and I are actually really connecting the line. And this goes back to the OD sort of conversation and training. For us, we want to connect learning to business results the best that we can. And we want to connect it you know, in a way that makes sense for our managers and for our leaders so that they can see the connection and so that it's not just the training that you're going to. And for the record, I think there is a lot of value in like building skills at scale. If you're a new manager, like there's some things you just need to do. Like that is, I think, for sure reasonable and to have a program that first line, like all first line managers go through is, is really important as an example. And there's other examples of skills at scale that I think are important. And so I don't want to minimize that. My point is more around how you think about building strategic L&D programming that really helps drive the business. Like for, for example, like other companies, again, not an intercom problem, but unfortunately, a year and a half into COVID, people were like, I'm done with this. I'm going to figure out how to live. During that first year, we saw yeah, unprecedented, like the lowest situation we were at. And a lot of companies saw this. And partially, I think that was because we did a good job on the way out and we made sure people had what they needed and so forth. But we saw a really low sort of attrition rate. And then a huge spike. I mean, there's all these articles about the great migration and all that stuff. And I think, again, back to my beliefs there, I think there's some psychological component there that we can talk about. But we were seeing lots of attrition, as was everybody else. And so for us, of course, losing people and losing great people was had a massive impact on the business. And so how do you connect sort of your L&D programming to wanting to help drive retention? As an example, a specific business problem that we had, how do we make sure that we connect our, our learning programs to, to that problem? And Liz and her team and, and Eve, who, who's in Dublin, built this sort of business case for coaching. Um, and it was around make, making sure that we're having coaching conversations where and when it matters, you know, coaching for things like retaining and rehiring. So we had this sort of this rehire kind of concept that we were 
that we are actually um, still trying to coach our managers to to bring to their teams. Imagine you are trying to rehire every employee on your team. What would that sound like? Pretend like you were recruiting those folks. And when you recruit people, you talk about things like the trajectory of the company, the vision and mission of the company, what you can look forward to from a career growth perspective, the things that like you do once to try to get people in the door, but then sometimes forget to do. And yes, some of this is good, like manager hygiene 101, but specifically trying to put sort of um, build skills in, in this area at this time based on this need. Um, so we've been, we, we try in general to, to do that. That's our main sort of ethos, if you will, when we build L&D, like bespoke L&D work, is to make sure that we're trying to connect with the business as much as possible. I absolutely love this idea of rehiring your employees. Yeah. And we should do this quarterly, right? That's the... Totally. Totally. One, one, one of uh, the leaders on my team runs uh, total awards is Paul. He, he, like, he's recently new, but this was an idea that he was like hammering on when, when he first came in when we were doing some of our strategy work for was first half of the year. And yeah, it's absolutely, it's, it's a very simple idea, but it's a really powerful idea. And it's actually pretty fun too. If you think about it, if you sit down with your, your employee and you think of that mindset and you think about sort of things you might say to that person, it's fun. And then it's also, I think, really energizing for folks. It's a nice reset, right? If you didn't know how, how has my role evolved in the past few months or years, this is a really great way to reset. Absolutely. Yeah, and we thankfully have an amazing story to tell right now. The intercom is law and firing. Now we are growing uh, faster than we have in a very long time. For sure, the fastest you know, um, ever at, at sort of the scale of the, of the company, more companies like like us. So it's really an exciting time for us. And sometimes we forget to, to remind people of that. And especially in, in the last, whatever, 18 months, it's just been such a business sort of the reality that people have been living in, of just doubling down and connecting with your team and having these such conversations really goes a long way. We are about out of time. And I just have one question that I ask all of my guests, which is what are your go-to resources that have kept you at the bleeding edge to use your words of your space? So for me, I think this is, it can be lonely at the top, yeah, especially in HR roles. It, it's, it can be lonely. And I really lean on my community of, of fellow colleagues. And for years, I've had a very small but important cohort of folks that, that I speak to regularly. We get together uh, as a group, but we also individually will connect it. And that's probably the main reason I would say that I, I stay on top of trends and stay connected to the things that people are doing. So I think that's my main as an HR leader, like the things that I'm most interested in these days and focused on, not so much from a legacy perspective, but maybe from like an industry perspective. Um, I'm really interested in this co- the concept that we were discussing earlier around holistic or health as a driver of success and engagement. I think we've been as an industry too narrowly focused, you know, on this idea of like test and and survey and then act engagement, trying to move your engagement score from X to Y. And I don't think that is the whole story. And I think um, part of that is education for the industry, but part of it is just helping people think through, I think, um, more of a business lens as an HR to the industry and an organization. So to know that, for example, and to admit, like, my people programs aren't the, thing, the only things that drive engagement in, in the company. Frankly, they're probably not even the most important things that drive engagement in the company. And the connection to the mission and vision of the company, arguably, maybe the, the most important thing. Is my team responsible for that? Not necessarily. You know, companies and, and, and other HR leaders think about engagement at a more holistic level. I think is something I'm really interested in. I think is important. 
I appreciate your time, Chris. Thanks so much. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Head over to levelingup.co to join our newsletter and to find past episodes. 